Hello, welcome to Louder Than Words, where we talk about ideas that improve lives. I'm your host, Jules Pretty from the University of Essex. It's a great pleasure to welcome to the show Paul Hibbard and Abigail Webb from the Department of Psychology at the University of Essex. Paul, Abigail, studied here and is currently at the University of Suffolk. Our topic today is on visual information for a podcast show, which doesn't have any visuals, so that's kind of interesting. Um, How we as humans see the world and process it, how technology is opening up new options for immersive theatre, and then, in a sense, the kind of applications of virtual reality into assistive technology, how these have kind of practical applications. So interested from the research side through to applications. Paul and Abby, welcome to the show. So let's begin with your own work and interest. Tell us a bit, if you would, um, listeners, tell listeners a bit about your research and interests, a couple of headlines. So Paul, why don't we start on your side? Okay, yeah, thank you. So I'm generally interested in how we create our experience of being in our world, our three-dimensional world. Of course, that's all done via the way that we put our sensory information together. I'm mainly interested in visual perception. And recently, that's taken me towards doing lots of work with virtual and augmented reality, because it's an obvious application of where, you know, you really are creating your experience from the information provided by the technology. And also in using that technology in things like assistive technology for people with visual field loss, understanding how this process differs in people with migraine, for example, and also other applications of VR in in theatre and other other domains. Fantastic. Abby? Um, So Paul was my PhD supervisor, so um, I've been trained to kind of do research in visual perception, um, but mine specifically um, looks at facial emotions, so how we read um, an emotion in somebody else's face, but kind of more from an evolutionary perspective and a very using kind of a low-level approach. You know, what what is it about the signal of a face in terms of it just being a signal, not me understanding who you are or how old you might be or how attractive you might be or what your ethnicity is, just what are the basics of that emotion how do I need to respond appropriately given our shared environment um, so that was what my PhD focused on um, COVID threw a little bit of a, a curveball uh, which meant that we couldn't necessarily get close to people's faces um, so we weren't able to explore how facial emotion perception works in virtual reality um, or in virtual environments uh, so we were looking at how we could explore the virtual environment in other ways um, and we kind of stumbled upon this area which has kind of snowballed and become um, really big and interesting which is virtual reality theatre um, how we can use that as a platform to improve the accessibility of theatre by basically bringing theatre to people rather than expecting people to go to the theatre which has a lot of barriers associated with it great Good. So we're taking in visual and other signals all the time to create the 3D worlds that we live in, Paul. Um, tell us a little bit of, about those kind of practical applications and we'll we'll come then to the immersive theatre um, as a specific example of that. Set the kind of wider scene for us. Of, what what's what what are the what are the new things that are happening and we've recently discovered and their applications okay well in terms of applications i, I mean i guess to me the most obvious one is that you know we all spend a lot of our times looking at screens these days um, that's what we do and so 
what we're trying to do there is give an impression of something, whether that be you know people acting in a video or whatever. Um, and of course, there are different kinds of screens. You know, there is your phone, there's your tablet. There's you know we we um, as we often do, we played around with 3D TV a, while, a few years ago, and that often comes and goes. But what's really kind of take seems to be taking hold at the moment is virtual reality and I think that's to me that's an interesting one because unlike a screen where you're looking at a screen and you know that you can see your phone or your tablet and you know you've got this sort of dual element to it where it's both a tablet and there's something in the screen there a flat world and then a, r- a world around it and yeah, in it exactly and a world in it whereas in virtual reality you stick the screen right up against your face so the in in the in the um, head-mounted display you can't see the exterior world anymore and then you really are in the middle of the action and and that to me makes it much more like our experience of the real world and then the the interesting questions technologically are really how you create we call it immersion and presence it's the idea that you kind of you're taken away from the real world and you kind of lose sight of what you know the, the real world around you but you are completely taken in and convinced that you really are in that virtual world that of course actually when it comes down to it it's just pixels on a screen amazing isn't it uh, which is which in a sense is a kind of reflection of of how our eyes see light anyway it's just light signals but then we transfer them into something much more complex and normal in the way that we see the world um that's right. I mean, on one level, of course, the you know, very simplistic now, but the the eye is just a, a digital camera and it's got photoreceptors, so it, it sees light of the colour that it likes and they respond. But then that's only the beginning of the story because most of the hard work is done in the brain because the brain has then got to take that information and, and make sense of it and yeah. you know, recognise people and, and create that sort of conscious experience. of. So, so we could think of these VR um uh units as being extensions of 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 our kind of well they are aren't they they're extensions of our kind of natural way of seeing the world most people won't have probably put on a vr headset happy what's it like tell us about the physical experience or indeed the kind of the emotional experience you put this on as paul was describing what what is it then like i think it depends what you're doing um if you're using the if you're using the vr headset to just sit and for example just stay stationary in your seat and to look around you with 360 degree control I don't personally find that too bad I find that okay um, but I have noticed I did play a I can't remember which video game it was but with my with my brother-in-law um, and you interacted with your environment so um, you could you could move within a certain you know space and I did not enjoy that at all and I think that's quite common that's I think some people call it VR legs and um, people feel quite um, nauseous. Nauseous, yeah. yeah. Uh, didn't, and then I think actually I got quite used to. It. I was surprised at how quickly. And I think this is something that a lot of people do report. They they adapt, um, they adjust to their virtual environment quite well after a period of time. But then it's the process if you take it off and you're back in the you know the real physical environment, and it you have to readjust again, and it, it hits you again. The nausea comes back. Interesting. So I'm, just, I'm interested in your point, Paul, about saying that. At a certain point, with this kind of immerse, immersion, this full immersion, the, the the other world disappears, and this becomes the real world, as it were. I mean, I'd say that with with um, inverted commas because it raises questions as to what is reality, of course, which is a separate thing. But but if it's working really well, you're fully immersed into the thing that you are looking at. Um, what what? How, how does that make us? How does that make you feel when you're 
when you are. You just, in the same way, I suppose, as going to see a good show at the theatre um, or watching a film. You become fully immersed in it, but in a different kind of way. Yeah, I think to me that's that comparison is what makes it yeah, it, easier to understand is that you know we you know Abby and I have often talked about you know what's the most immersive technology and and sometimes we say well it's a book isn't it because it's you know you you are totally in in the um, environment and of course you're creating all of the characters and what they look like etc in your head but then you've got when you say you're looking at um, theatre or um, I guess television is a better example you know you are immersed I mean I've often had that experience where you're looking at the screen and you realise that you're looking at the screen and then suddenly within five minutes you realise no you're not you're in the Queen Vic or the Rovers or whatever, whichever um, soap you're watching, and uh, and and it's sort of and you're there, but then as soon as you know someone speaks to you, you're not. You're back in the room and and you jump. And I think the difference with VR is that firstly that the experience is because it's it is exactly the well as as close as we can make it exactly the perceptual experience that you'd get in the real world. And I think more importantly for the immersion is that you you lose. Um, you know, contact with the real world, which of course is one of the things that makes it more immersive, but also one of the things that makes it kind of, you know, one of the problems with the technology in some cases. That's one of the things that some people have reported when they've used some of the VR um, applications is that they find it quite um, antisocial. Um, and, and actually people with children, for example, have said, well, you know, actually, this is quite dangerous because I can't, you know, I can keep one eye on the kids if I'm watching TV, but I certainly can't if I'm in VR because I'm not, I'm not here anymore. I'm somewhere else. And, and they might in a similar kind of way. So, yeah, so it's raising questions. How, how, then, did, how then did you apply this in this idea of um, immersive theatre? Tell us a little bit about um, what you did with the, the VR platform, the immersive theatre, the live capture, the use of it as prequel, as a kind of saying, well, here's a method that you could use to supplement the, the real world experience with the with the virtual stroke or augmented tell us a little bit about what you did with this I think um just before before we go into how we how how we made that work it's good to just mention the Swayze effect now mm-hmm. <laughs> there's, there's um so we didn't we didn't really um come across this until fairly recently but it turns out there is a term called the Swayze effect which is when you're in the virtual environment a lot of people describe um, they didn't use that term specifically but they have different ways of describing the same sensation which is that you are aware that even though there is a real, real physical world around you, you're in a virtual world and you're there as though you can see it. Everything looks as real as it would normally. Um, you could fool yourself to think that you could interact with things um, and that you have control over the environment, but there is something stopping you and there is a disconnect between you in the virtual reality environment and the environment itself and they it's called the Swayze effect because it's this you're basically a ghost in the environment like Patrick Swayze in the movie um, which I think is something that a lot of our participants mentioned as well so in our in our study of virtual reality theatre um, we we paired with um, an external partner Liver so they've got all the technology they basically take a 3D camera um, they place it in the front middle row of a live theatre performance as it's happening in in real life in real time and they capture everything happening within um, 360 degrees basically so what happens then when you stream that content to a virtual reality headset 
is that you, the user, can see all the performers on the stage in front of you and um, you can turn around and see the people behind you. You can watch the person next to you and see how they're responding to the content as it happens in real time. And what's really weird actually is if you look down at your legs, there's no legs, there's wires. Um, so that's that's how that's how Liver capture the content. We then asked our participants while they were at home during lockdowns, um, can you use this headset to watch a theatre performance and just tell us what you thought about it? You know, how did it feel? Did you enjoy it? What are your views on the the platform generally? Um, did it make you feel any better, any you know, any worse? And how could it be improved? And um, the inter- obviously, when you're using a survey, you're limited with how much information you can get from somebody. But it was the interviews that were interesting because I think people view the platform quite in quite a similar way um, because you they, they talk about these really abstract concepts like the Swayze effect and the, but I think even just just looking at this stuff the the semantics is really interesting the the analogies that people use and the metaphors well, that people they are use. searching for this is something yeah. completely new as yeah. you've described so of course we're searching for for um, you know rock points in our that we can use reference points to come forward and say well this is like something or is not like something yeah. um, as we describe this new world you're going to need to use your existing terminology and experiences aren't you yeah yeah there's been some great ones so tell us a bit about i mean kind of what are, what are people do people think it's a, a good experience uh, let's kind of start with that. Uh, you know, you're at home and you've got this this um, headset on, and which is replicating you sitting in the middle of the front row. Um, is that a kind of? Is that is that is? I suppose there are two questions. Is that better than watching a flat screen at home? That would be question one. Question two: How does it compare with actually being in the real place? Um, so I think. Yeah, it's a very good way of describing it because in, in one sense you think, well, what's different from watching a screen? Well, it's be- it's that sort of three-dimensionality and that sort of the being there and really thinking that you are, are there. I think what, some of the the weird, some of the extra things that you get is like as Abby was describing are kind of weird because one of the really great things is you see the audience, um, but you can't interact with them. They're real people, but you know if you scream at them and wave at them, they they don't know you're there. Um, so that's one of the. the so that's why you feel you know, a bit like a yeah. ghost. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. yeah. that's why that, you're yeah. Patrick Swayze. Yeah, yeah. 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 So so that so that's that, and so so I think yeah, as a as a perceptual experience, it it is you know. It's good. I think the other, I suppose there's two dimensions to it. One is that sort of the presence and the immersion side. But the other thing, of course, about live theatre is that it's live. And that's where you can compare it to some of the other things that, you know, that people use to sort of to stream theatre. Because if you compare it to live streaming onto a, a screen, then, you know, you've got the, it's not as good on the screen as in VR because you haven't got that sort of 3D presence. But what you have got is that you know, watching a live experience. It seems in some sense, you know, as a, as a psychologist, it's no different because you're still sat there watching the screen. But there's something about knowing that there's thousands of other people watching you at the same time and that the actors are on the stage right now. And that's what you don't get in the, the kind of VR that we So we use. know that as the viewer and that, and that does change the way that we're seeing that as a, as a real experience in a sense. Or, or it's a differentiator. Yeah, there's a mundane element of that because people, because we, because we all, this is what we do these days. You know, if you want to make a cup of tea, you press pause. You can't do that with live theatre, <laughs> and and that, and that you know that's sort of something we do to ourselves. But we kind of lose that ex- 
that joint experience That's with other people. Interesting. Very interesting. It's so the to, word to, that you used as well. You asked if it, if people are happy that it replicates theatre, but it's, it doesn't replicate theatre, and people are quite happy and content that it doesn't. It doesn't replicate it. It kind of it synthesizes it, but in a very different way. People are, on the whole, quite happy that this is a. It's not trying to be theatre. It's not trying to replace theatre. It's something they see as similar to that works alongside and can be compatible with theatre, which I think is what a lot of... That would be the ideal goal, I think, that you have an additional platform that can maybe reach more audiences. And that's where it comes back again to people using analogies. People say that, you know, it's like having sweetener in your tea and it's not, you know, it's not it's not the real thing. It's, it's not going to be as good as the real thing because you want the sugar, but it's not, you know, it, it's it's good enough. Yeah, And sometimes that's what yeah. you need. And, and then starts to open up questions about access... And who can go and who can afford? I mean, you know, there are kind of questions. If you if you can't afford to sit in the front row at the theatre, but you could access using VR a pretty good experience, then that might do fine. Um, but there might be other access questions. I mean, you've thought a bit about this. What? How does this open up? So it's a different experience. Um, it's it's an it's, it's an augmented one, but it's not a. Re- it doesn't um, uh, remove the need for the or the benefit of actually the real live experience with all sorts of living people around you. That is going to remain completely different. But this opens up space for a, for a larger number of people to engage with something. Yeah, is that the, the question? Large enough and different groups of people. Yeah, so um, it could be used for, I mean, a range of reasons. So, so for example, quite a few. We did include an audience group who were novel audience, novice audiences. So basically, people who don't attend. They said they didn't attend the theatre very much prior to COVID because it just wasn't something that they were necessarily interested in. And even the people who identified as regular theatre goers, they said on the study that it opened them up to new types of content that they wouldn't necessarily want to commit financially to to go and see, you know, at the theatre you know you can sample different types of material and so there's that way of bringing in new audiences but also opening current audiences to new material and just sharing the content more widely but I guess it's um yeah it's there are there are lots of other applications as well for people who can't get to the theatre you know perhaps if they're not physically able to or if they have um, mental health issues that prevents them from going as well um you can, and this, this is a very, this is a really important um, sort of caveat to what we what we found is that yes, people do think it could be good. It could be a good way to open up theatre to underserved audiences, and underserved audiences think that generally too. But the really important thing is that they don't want to be subjected to second best. They don't want to have the thing that's you know not as good as the real thing, and you have to make sure that that offering that you're providing is accessible in itself and so there's a lot more work to be done to understand how virtual reality platforms and those immersive technologies can benefit that particular audience mm. group yeah i mean cynically one could imagine um uh, a situation where people say well we don't need to put in ramps and access for people who need mobility to get into the right place in the theater because you can watch it on vr well by definition you're already saying one is second class and one is one is the real thing and actually what one wants to be saying is this is a different kind of experience than this one over here um uh, and it may allow more people to access 
80% of the experience, which is not that bad. Yeah, I mean, it's a different kind of adjustment. I think with, with getting to broader audiences, you have to think, well, what, what is it that's a, di- a difficulty for this person? And, yeah, you take, you know, many theatres, like, you know, our, our local Mercury Theatre is, you know, is very accessible since they've you know, they spent a lot of money on, on renovating it recently. So actually, if your issue is that, that might have stopped you going to the theatre is that you're a wheelchair user, well, you know, just make sure there are no stairs in the way. But if your issue is, you know, some other um, condition that makes it difficult to leave the house um, or, you know, have, you know, very strong sensory um, sensitivity so that the idea of being in a theatre foyer is just going to stop you getting there or if you just you know financially if you just live or if you're a carer you have to be at home looking after somebody yeah any number of reasons so actually if you can identify what is it that is stopping you doing something you might want to do is there a way of making it work for you in a case it's not the same experience but if that experience of live theatre isn't going to be available for you this is something else that you Mm. could experience instead and putting it, putting it around from the performer's point of view. So I was going to ask about what 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 what's have you have you spoken to performers? Because I could, you know, at the at, in the first instance, um, any method that increases the audience, probably performers are going to be thinking that's great. More people are watching the thing that we've put all this effort into doing, and me personally in this performance, and us as the as the crew and the set and everything. Uh, but on the other hand they might also be not quite sure maybe maybe this is just an early technology thing I mean, yeah there's a, there, i mean it is an an area that certainly needs to be explored there's a nervousness because on the one hand the, the positive way i've heard it described is if you're doing a, a set at edinburgh fringe you know you can get to depending on what your venue is you might get to 50 people above a pub every night for a month well that's that's not that many people but if you then you know create a recording of that you can get to whoever is in the world who might be interested so you've got that long tail idea so there's an almost infinite potential audience for that you can find but then the downside is that obviously performers get very nervous as soon as something has been recorded because then then it exists and then if it kind of gets out there then why why the, the worry is why would you then go to the live performance if yeah. you can get hold of this recording Has anybody? I mean, I, I speaking as, uh, as as someone who gives lots of talks, as we all do, is very different giving a talk to a machine with people on it than live performance, standing in front of live people. There's there's a kind of energy, a magic, in a place with real people. So I I suspect that performance would say, well, that's that's the lovely bit of it is performing in front of six or 60 or 600 it doesn't matter because people are kind of engaging in some sort of way so i can i can imagine it's still going back to being a both and model and not an either or one which is what you've both been saying really i think yeah and of course remembering that the the experiences that we're talking about they are recordings of if of performances that have been done to a with a live audience in front of you, yes. so, so so it is a live performance it, for the, for the yeah. performers, which is very, as, as you say, that experience of of giving a lecture to a screen and thinking, is anyone even still there? Is that we were had in COVID is very very different it's from very, giving a proper lecture. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of painful, isn't it? Yeah. Even thinking about it. That's, Tell what's, us that, that's what's reassuring, though. I think it's nice that you know the, uh, the participants on the majority they didn't think that it would pose a threat to traditional theatre because they do see it as something distinct, but something that is also compatible and probably won't ever take away from the fact that the live experience is better and people describe feeling the atmosphere and just the sensation of other people around you collectively laughing together and you know the the buzz and there's so many words that people use to describe it and I don't think that will ever disappear but it's just like you know people are happy to watch football on TV but you know probably most of them would rather go to the real thing but that doesn't mean that you don't enjoy watching it on TV it's just... 
Tell us about the use, the or the use or the idea of of using pre uh, creating prequels. So VR as a way of telling a bit of the story before you've even actually engaged with it. So I'm thinking of a both and bit in sequence here, um, rather than this kind of separate experience. But you, as you were, as you've written about, you could use the VR as a way to say, here's a starter for 10 before the thing that you're going to go and engage with. Yeah, and that's really how we got into this whole field in a way, because we, um, we're working with uh, a poet, Murray Lachlan Young, who'd written a, a, a play that was being produced for live presentation. And it was that was always the, the goal. But what they wanted to do was thinking of a way of, again, this idea of reaching broad audiences. And there's a kind of idea, well, if you can give a bit of a teaser to audiences about the story and get them kind of immersed in, in the world of the, the mystery of the Vadelsham mumps in this case, um, then that would be great. And of course, they were also thinking, well, you know, how can you engage with children, particularly who might not have had that experience of, of going to theatre? And if you could get a you know, an, a nice video game that they might enjoy playing, would that then lead on to them being kind of engaged with um, wanting to go and see the play? Um, and again, one, one interesting thing that we found there is, you know, I guess I say it's interesting, it might be inevitable in a way that, you know, when we, we it was a family show, so there were lots of people who, you know, there are families, so it's adults and children who are going to see the play, and the children really loved the VR video game um, and much more than the, the adults, and the adults were quite didn't like it as much as the play itself. So oh, that's interesting. So there might be a generational thing here, that, or or just what we're used to, and we'll carry that forward for years, and then... Yeah, I mean, maybe it's as simple as, you know, children don't have that worry about, you know, this new technology, what's this weird headset you're going to put onto me, which the adults might have had a nervousness about, or the, the kids will just go for it, won't they? Yeah. And, and the idea of that was that, you know, it takes them straight into the story. They're already excited. They already know something about the characters and, and what's going to happen. Very interesting. Very interesting. Well, let's come come to some wider questions about about the applications of 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 these these uh, virtual and indeed augmented um, technologies for not just leisure sector but for technology for work for health. When when we start when you take what you've learnt about about people's interaction with them as as we were just saying, children versus adults. I mean that already raises a question as to you know, how, who is going to be, which groups of people are going to be, um, we're going to find it easier for for them to use the technology straight off because you've already built that experience. Um, uh, so what what are we thinking about when it comes, when we're thinking about work and health? And, and then, as uh, we were saying earlier on, assistive technologies that are deliberately designed to do something with a health outcome. I think one of the areas that I'm interested in at the moment is um, is in training, like you know, human resources training, for example, you know, professional development, because, you know, we often, you know, have, we can sit and watch videos um, as part of our training to sort of see scenarios. One thing that VR is, is definitely good for is building empathy. There's that notion, we call it the social side of presence, the social presence, that it really does feel like you're in there in a room with someone much more than it does watching TV and and of course you've got the you can do clever things in in VR that you can't do with um, in with the real world you can take someone else's perspective if you've recorded something from someone's point of view you can put someone in that point of view and get what a day in the life of this person is like and VR is really good at building empathy and and that's that is hopefully going to be a good way of you know you know you know getting people to understand other people's point of view and that's there's applications of that in training mm, interesting Abby, what are your thoughts on that, on that side? Um, so I think 
I was thinking about it more in terms of the um, the social stuff because we have there's a lot of um, there's quite a bit of research that seems to be coming out about using these platforms as kind of a behavioural intervention activities basically so you're practicing soft skills and um, that's something that paul has um, worked on before as well and we've we've spoken with um, a company called body swaps for example they practice soft soft skill learning in virtual environments and one of the things that um so what do we mean by that give, give us some so, examples what so for example um you can the, the reason why it's called body swaps just using this as an example is because you can take yourself out of the um the user itself and you can you can re-watch your behaviors in the virtual environment as you talk to somebody else so you could use that as a um, as a kind of learning platform for if you're practicing to be a therapist. How do you respond to your client? How do you you know what language do you use? What how much you know the eye contact that you use, the body language that you use? So that's the kind of soft skill learning. So the similar to kind of training to what Paul mentioned, and. Um, I, I find that really interesting. Um, I know that there's some discussion about using it with nursing students as well and in the police. Um, and it's, I think when we talk about the social skills, it depends a lot about on the the kind of social avatar that you're using in that environment because it has to be realistic enough. Um, and that's, I think, when you get into the realm of things like Uncanny Valley and, you know, what what feels real to us because social interactions are really complex and I don't think that it's as straightforward as being able to necessarily replicate it with a 3D, you know, digital avatar or with a, if you get a 3D mesh in the environment and you you get a rendered image and you superimpose it over that mesh, it still doesn't quite look right. And then when, especially when it comes to faces, faces are, faces are so complex and so different that even when you, you know, you have these these avatars and their faces change in real time sometimes they still don't look right and they still look a bit creepy or uncomfortable and you're still not connecting with them on the level that you would um, emotionally in real life in real face-to-face environments so it's I think when you talk about soft skill learning and within the social context it gets a bit more complicated and how realistic and very interesting so so these technologies would it be right to say are they then raising circling back to what we were saying at the beginning raising questions fundamental questions about the way that we interact the world with the world irrespective of the the vr bit that's telling us that that our interaction with faces is is very much more complex than most people think or perhaps we knew that already and we're just kind of understanding the applications of the technology more I guess to me, it's to me, it's pinning down what those differences are. Because as Abby said, the idea of the uncanny valley—it's like if you're talking to a, an avatar that's clearly a robot or a monster, you kind of go with it. If you're talking to someone who actually is a person, um, you know, it's fine. You're having a normal interaction. There's a sort of point where it's a middle it's, ground. Yeah, it's, yeah. Like, it's it's kind of this is this is a person, but there's something not quite right about them, and I don't know what it is, but it's freaking freaking me out a bit. Yeah. So that's the idea of the uncanny valley, and I suppose that's the question. So what is it? I suppose that's where then. The, the detailed of the science, you know, as I was talking about at the beginning, it's a well, what exactly is the information? So, you know, on one level, you know, so, you know, it's still clearly it's just a matter of perception. There is something that's different between that real person and this avatar of that person. Yeah. And then we can figure out what it is. And that's, I suppose, that's how you make the technology better. Because as soon as you figure out which, you know, sometimes it's just sort of slight delays in updating things. Sometimes, you know, it's the, the eye movements not being quite right or, or whatever it might be. Or then contradictory you, with a facial part yeah, of the facial yeah. expression. Yeah, so so then, if, we, if we have a clearly defined issue, like here's a training programme, 
you know, in the next two hours, you're going to learn about how to be a better therapist or, or to learn your health and safety update or whatever it is, then you've one has already defined a kind of box for this particular experience. And if there are wrinkles, you just say, well, that's part of the wrinkles of the technology. I'm kind of sitting here learning about it. It's not trying to be something more than that. But when it becomes something more, that's when it can get creepy. Is yeah, that, that's kind of what yeah, you're saying, because it, as it starts to feel like a, it's trying to pretend to be a real life thing, then we start getting, we, it starts telling us other things. Yes, and I think, of course, that is everywhere in, in, in sort of AI at the moment. We talk about, you know, chatbots, we talk about um, deep fakes, you know, how, how, how do you know if this is real or, uh, or if it's faked? Yeah, I mean, I was going to raise the question of AI. I mean, does this, does this, is this hovering in the in the wings a little bit, or perhaps not even in the wings? Because if if you can create compelling three D moving imagery over a period of hours that allows us to become completely immersed in it, because we've filmed it and stitched it together in a particular kind of way, then AI is going to be able to do that pretty well from scratch at some point if you've got the right inputs to it and may then be able to iron out some of these problems more but still may leave a blurred hand or a, a strange bit of image which tells us that there's something kind of weird going on here. Yeah, um, we have a phrase, I mean, in, in AI there's this phrase of the Turing test which is, you know, when the idea that if you're interacting with somebody by a text on a computer, can you tell that you're talking to a person or talking to... Uh, a computer we we've kind of adopted that in in the field we talk about the visual turing test which is do you know whether this is virtual or whether it's real and it, like, on the simplest level you know you can say well is this a real object on the table in front of me or is it some kind of holographic projection and of course that that then expands to people as well doesn't yeah. it eventually yeah yes exactly so uh, i mean if we were jumping ahead in, i'm speculating here wildly but if you're at the moment you're putting on a clunky great piece of technology on your head which has weight and physicality and cuts you off from from other people who might be doing something similar. Or if somebody's doing it in a room and other people are not, it's very obvious that they're literally living in a different world for a while. Um, I guess we can assume that that is only early stages of a technology that might be very much more like the glasses that we're wearing or or even implants or I mean, contact lenses for example people contact. are working on like augmented reality with through contact lenses that so you don't have to have the headset yeah yeah so we can expect that that's mm. that's that's, yeah. that's coming mm -hmm. well t tell us a little bit more about then direct assistive technology can you can you give us give listeners a couple of examples of where you where we might be thinking that these sorts of technologies can then have a, a a role of direct intervention to make people's lives better or to deal with some kind of existing problem that they have uh, removing a problem or addressing it what 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 sorts of areas are we thinking about or looking at i think one one obvious area is anywhere where there is a you know a sensory impairment then can you substitute and that's where it you, you're kind of using all of the technology. So, for example, one area that we're looking at is visual field loss, where people, you know, typically through um, brain damage, through stroke or some other um, reason, will have an an area of their visual field that where they can't see as as well as they might have or at all. And then the question is, well, can you somehow try and 
bring back the information that they're missing. So then when you're talking about augmented reality, which is, you know, in our extension, it's like, it's like virtual reality, but instead of only seeing the virtual world, this is where you see both the real world plus virtual bits added on top of it right then can so you're you, filling yeah. in literally filling in the spaces yeah what you do because yeah. you'd have a camera that's picking up the information that would have that you would have been able to see in that camera in that space and then the question is well can you then think of a way of presenting that so that people can make use of that information very interesting technologically hugely challenging yeah think, but, but but equally i mean we but and then we hesitate and we think but crikey i mean if you can if you can imagine it then it's probably halfway to actually doing it yeah and i think and a whole everything that we're we're working on talking about today has been using consumer technology and i think to me that's a really interesting area because if you think of developing something for people with you know particular kind of visual field loss there may be a, an audience of you know however many people um then you know it's going to be very expensive to create that for people whereas if you can use technology that's been built for you know the entertainment industry that's going to be on our, our shelves for a few hundred pounds then you know you can let the those people do all the hard work of building the hardware for you and sort of piggyback on that if you like so you're going you'd be going from commercial world into health world for example yeah. and then that might have applications that could improve the lives for a very large number of people i mean macular degeneration is a common condition for older people in particular but not just older people but Definitely, when that would yeah. be an area where you've got visual loss yes and that could improve lives substantially yeah so it's thinking about you know so what what is it that you know it does depend on what kind of loss people have got generally where you've got peripheral visual field loss it's going to be easier whereas central visual field loss because we know we, so that's where the, all the detail is that that's the one that's much more challenging because yeah. it's harder to move that out into the periphery and then people not be able to see because we can't see as well yeah. in the periphery as we can in the center so, so again that raises questions about about what one not not deliberately but but implicitly promises with with technology and ideas because if if one were to say well this is very interesting this kind of sensory augmentation that's going to help a lot of people with visual loss if if for example it's not going to help those with um central field loss for another 20 years well we don't want to be saying it's just around the corner that's right. I mean, I think there's um, whenever you talk to people about scientific developments, it's always it'll be ready in five to ten years. And, you know, it's, it's actually what, what can we honestly and that's where, you know, we work with potential users a lot. So, you know, rather than building something and saying, hey, you know, what do you think? We actually sort of we say we talk about our ideas, we show them prototypes and we work and, and actually we've got a good sense of, you know, which conditions it might work. And we've been very open with people. We say, you know, people have come to us and they've you know we said we probably won't work for your condition um because they've got very little because uh, you know, some people have very little field left and as we say there's probably not much we can do but people have been amazingly generous with their time because that even that helps us because you know actually knowing that it's not going to work for in a particular condition is is good because then we people need to look at something else for those people. And, and yeah. focus, exactly, yes, yeah, to help something else. Well, very interesting. So we've gone from from VR technology that's that's not so much widely available, but it is available for, for people to use. It's used in, in uh, gaming technology. Uh, it's available to people. You've been using it in theatre, and we've talked about the implications for and op- opportunities and applications for for health and other technologies. Uh, speculate a bit over the next five to ten years. What what do you think would be your kinds of guesses as to the sorts of things that we might see in the future? Stroke 
what does this raise recommend, recommendations or big questions for for kind of health sector or policy or indeed theatre as you were saying Abby I mean what what comes into your mind when you're thinking forward I know we could easily say well AI is just going to you know throw a curveball into this space because we don't know quite what that's going to lead to on the other hand we might say well, we never per- know perfectly well because it's just going to process things quicker and faster and produce new ideas I think one idea I have on that is um, actually is um that sometimes new technology is is waiting for that use case as they say and and actually i mean vr seems to be there a little bit at the moment i mean we see as i say sometimes when technology comes along and you know psychologists can think well that's not going to take off it's like 3d tv i guess you know it, it it came around what whenever 15 years ago and we kind of thought yeah we saw this in the 80s it's come back again it's not going to stick and there's because it's not as good as as other op- options i think sometimes i think when with vr it's I, I'm, I'm going to say I don't really know what the applications are because, you know, people have tried playing around with things. It's, video gaming seems an op- obvious one, but we know that when pe- gamers will spend hours playing games, you can't really spend more with current technology. You can't really spend very long with a VR headset on because it gets uncomfortable. Um, but I suppose that's like when, when people came up with smartphones. I mean, when Apple came up with the, the iPhone, it was that everyone was like, what's it for? And it's like, well... You'll think of something. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, exactly. So I'm not really sure. At the yes, moment. yeah, and those things can be quick, can't they? I mean, I, you know, the the year that the iPhone came out, 2007, three big other companies own 97, 98 percent of the mobile phone market: Motorola, Nokia, and BlackBerry. And within five years, they had three percent. Mm-hmm. So you, we sometimes get these tipping points with technology. That where suddenly things kind of completely flip because the conditions are right that you just mentioned. Um, and there's the novelty value as well. Right. And it's yeah. it, it, these technologies are interesting. I think especially I, I've been reading quite a bit about, you know, the metaverse and how, you know, purchasing land in the metaverse and the the kind of the community the, the virtual communities that we can that we can have. And I think that it's it's good in one way because it opens up this this whole other space. But I think I don't know, and I don't know if it's me being pessimistic, but I do wonder how much the novelty will wear off to a certain extent, or whether or not it will be those kind of environments and and platforms will be used for specific things rather than for everything. Because I think you know, during, like just like during COVID, I think we all came to really value just the the importance of the the nuanced everyday just what life really is and sometimes that is simplistic and it is a bit boring and it's not very elaborate but it's the real thing and that's just there's something about it that we can't really put into words but it's the real thing and it's it's the best thing yeah okay great well thank you very much indeed that's been a fascinating conversation uh, paul hibbert abby webb thank you very much indeed uh, it's been a pleasure many thanks thanks that was louder than words If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. Have a look at the website for more information and do rate the pod if you can.